The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Today's episode of the History of Literature is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com hol. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Okay, let's get started. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. We are on a journey. A journey that started with the Epic of Gilgamesh and is going to end up somewhere. Well, who knows exactly? The journey's the thing, folks. It's that kind of deal. It's not A to B to Z. It's nomadic. What can I say? I come from gypsies. I like to wander. And life, isn't life just a bunch of wandering around? You don't know where you're going to end. You might think you do. You might have aspirations for certain achievements or milestones, but really, you're wandering. You're wandering just like me, people. You'd better enjoy the wander. So, along the way, as part of your journey or our journey, we like to read books because of the way those great books, the pinnacles of literature, help us to learn how to be better human beings. And I don't mean better in the sense of morally better, although that can happen. I mean in the sense of richer, more engaged, more alert, stretched out. They say this about meditation and yoga and exercise. It doesn't take time. It makes time. You make better use of your time. But time is an enemy, to be sure. It's a ticking clock that ends with an explosion for all of us. For all of us, there's no magical spy who arrives to disconnect the wires on this particular explosive device. Gee, (laughs) it's getting a little morbid, but it's true. Anyway, here's the point. We don't really control how much time we have, and there are many, many great books out there. I've read a few thousand myself, and I'm sure you have too. But there are still more, more than you'll get through. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the only way to get your fill might be to cut a deal with the devil, like Faust. But we know how that ends. Not good. Exploded in your room, as the real Dr. Faustus was. His body torn apart by demons, as the story went. Although most people, historians, think it was probably an alchemical experiment gone wrong. It's not pleasant either way. And then... Who knows what happens? Hell, I suppose. That was his bargain. So for the rest of us who are sailing closer to the shore, we have a decision to make. Some books may not get read. Which ones should those be? Luckily, Mike Palindrome and I have addressed that question. That's coming up in a few minutes. But first, are you someone who listens to the History of Literature podcast? You are! Well, how lucky for me, because... I was hoping to find some people who do. I've been looking for you. I want to share this special offer. A free prize in the mail selected and prepared by the team here at the studio. 
have got interns working overtime, which they like because they get time and a half, and triple time on holidays because that's what kind of boss I am. They're just waiting for you to do something nice for the show. Tell your friends in a tweet. Subscribe to our page on Facebook. Click the little five-star button the next time you're on iTunes. Maybe even leave us a nice review or do a write-up about the show on the blog. Send us an email with all your favorite books. Tell us tell us what you're thinking about. We don't ask for much. We're very grateful for all the support we've received. I do believe we have the best damn audience in the world. The worst producer. Sorry. Sorry, Gar. You know how I feel about you. You're terrible and you don't help. You hurt. You're my frenemy. Using that term broadly enough to include just plain enemies. You're my best fiend. I know, I know. Paychecks are paychecks. We're locked in here together. Why did you you just look at the door? It's not literally locked. Our owner isn't that crazy. God forbid. We'd break the door down. And there's always this little window up here in the ceiling. Did I tell you about the time I was teaching and I opened a window? Listeners, have I told you that story? It was a basement classroom. I stood on a desk. All the students were amazed at how I took charge. We don't have enough fresh air in here. That was my battle cry. You need fresh air for learning, to engage the mind. And there I went, up on the desk, opening this window that was way up at the top of the high wall, up near the ceiling. And I reached up, opened. (laughs) Fresh air to engage the mind, my dear students. I reached up, pulled down this window, and smoke came pouring in. Turned out that the window opened onto the smoker's lounge, which was on the floor above us. Where was I, Gar? No. No, before the part about hating you. Ah, yes. The audience. The best damn audience in the world. The audience makes everything worthwhile. So, send us your address. We're here at Jack Wilson Author at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, WilsonAuthor at gmail.com. And let us know where to send your free gift. Everyone, I received a wonderful message from a listener in Syria, in Aleppo. He's an English teacher working on his English, and he's listening to every episode, which he says he's enjoying quite a bit. The episodes on the Bible made him think about the way he reads the Koran. A wonderful listener, very proud and pleased to have him in the audience. He also likes my voice and says that if he weren't such a bookworm, my voice would put him to sleep. <laughs> I took that as a compliment and I thank him for the email. Stay safe there in Aleppo. We bookworms need to watch out for each other as best we can. So here we go with Mike Palindrome. Mike's a great words guy, a great writer, a great reader, a literature fanatic. He's deep, deeply immersed in literature, but he's not so much a numbers guy. That's what I'm learning. Mike's putting out, or actually, <laughs> I say that I'm learning this. I think I knew this a long time ago, back when we were studying astrophysics together. Someday I'll tell that story. For now, I'll tell you about 
Mike's list. He's recommending a, a book a day on Twitter. You can subscribe to that, sign up for that at Literature SC. It's his Twitter handle. Here's the thing about his list. He's announced that he's going to recommend a book a day for 10 years. I don't think he has any idea how many days that is. I keep reminding him it's over 3,650. There are leap days in there too, at least a couple. And his project requires him to have read every single book. Luckily, he's got a backlog. It's like oil. All that energy stored in the ground thanks to years and years of living things being compressed, squeezed into oil, thousands, millions of years being converted into black gold, fossil fuels. Well, that's Mike's 20s and 30s, storing up books for this project. He's read a bunch. Will he make it to 3,650? Signs are not good. He just crossed 100, and I've already seen most of his favorites. <laughs> 3,650 books. But he's promised it to his followers. He's committed. It's like me with a million downloads. I'm in this thing until then, for better or worse. For better or worse. Am I better? Gar, and you're worse? Is that, is that for better and worse? You get the two of us. Okay, so all this. All this had a point, people. It's not just rambling. All this is to say that I love the audience and I want to be helpful. And Mike is wrestling with some serious issues of a project that, frankly, may be more than he can possibly handle. So we were both thinking about overrated books. Classic works ostensibly classic works that you don't actually have to read. These are books you can cross off your list. I know you'll probably get angry. We're probably going to step on some toes here. Everybody has their favorite book, and I'm sure we're crossing off a few favorites for someone. Sacred Cows. Sacred, you know, Sacred Cows are popular. That's People forget about that when they talk about killing Sacred Cows. It's seen as, as such a brave and bold thing. But you know what? There's a reason why cows, why those cows are sacred in the first place. Think about it. Nothing is just born sacred, is it? Well, maybe so, I guess. When it comes to religious things, that's how it works. Maybe they are just born sacred. But when it comes to literature, sacred cows are human-made. They come from humans. We make things must-reads with our decisions with our recommendations, with these lists that people set forth. And Mike and I are here as a service to erase a few things from your list. Don't read this and don't read that and don't feel bad. Life is too short. So let's go. Let's hear what Mike has to say about overrated books. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. 
bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Mike, our old friend and the president of the Literature Reporters Club. And Mike, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jack. Okay, so today we have a good topic. I was kind of of two minds about uh, your choices for this, because on the one hand, our topic, I guess I should say, is um, uh, books you don't need to read, overrated books. And on the one hand, I was kind of hoping that everything that you pick today is something I've already read, because that'll let me comment on it. And on the other hand, I kind of thought, well, the more that you choose books that I haven't read, it'll save me some time, and <laughs> I can cross them off my list. So yeah. why don't we, uh, I'll let you go first. What's your first pick for an overrated book or a, a great book that doesn't need to actually be read? Yeah, I, I I try to pick books that uh, always appear on these top 100, top 50 lists. Yeah, there's no sense, so, you know, shooting fish in a barrel. It's got to be, I tried to do that too. Books that yeah. you might actually be tempted to read or feel like you're obligated to read. Uh, we don't need to save time for people by crossing off books that they've never heard of, for example. So my f my first one is Don Quixote. Oh, <laughs> Which I, I came to it with uh, with great expectations, mm -hmm. and um, you know it's considered the first picaresque novel. Mm -hmm. The word picaresque comes from is Spanish for rogue or rascal, and um, I and the version I bought had an introduction by Milan Kundera, who mm -hmm. I love. Yeah, uh, and you know I'd heard that Flaubert modeled Madame Bovary on it. If, uh, as, I don't know how logical that sounds, but and uh, Dostoevsky loved it. Uh, Kafka loved it. You know, yeah. Borges. So the list goes on and on. Oh, and it might be the first novel. Yeah, right. It's got a great pedigree. <laughs> that moniker, the first novel. Uh, so, um, what a relief I felt to give up on page one eighty-seven. <laughs> how many pages were left? Um, probably seven hundred, seven or eight hundred left. So you yes. gave up? Did you wrestle with the decision? I did because this was probably about ten years ago, and mm -hmm. these days, you know, I don't really give up on books. I, I put them down, and I, you know, I I just put down a suitable boy, which is <laughs> not not on this my list today, but yeah. is on a lot of best books lists yeah um and that's hundreds of thousands of words yeah it's a uh a very uh dense book as well so i know i'm going back to a suitable boy there there mm. are parts of it that are 
really, really exemplary and engaging and fun. But I know I'm never going back to Don Quixote. And <laughs> I think it's because I think you have to read this book when you have um, you have to read it in school. You have to read around it a little mm -hmm. bit. You know, I was you know his biography actually is pretty interesting. Um, Cervantes he he fought in against the Ottomans. Mm. He and his brother did, and he lost. I think he lost an arm, and he was incredibly well traveled. But I think the thing with this novel is it's it has for me it it had zero emotion mm. and mm -hmm. the comedy to me did not make me laugh at all. I know some people think like I've heard confederacy dunces I've heard some people tell me that 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 book's not funny at all, and that's the way I felt as I was reading Don Quixote mm. that this book was not funny at all to me well, you know I mean what my parents once told me my dad was telling me how much they loved ernie kovacs and he was their favorite comedian and it was just so funny and so he got this vhs tape of ernie kovacs and we all sat down to watch it and we watched you know about 10 minutes and i was not laughing and what surprised <laughs> me was my father wasn't laughing either and he just he was like oh this used to be really funny <laughs> and, you know, that was probably, at that time we were watching, it was probably about 30 years old. And it, the comedy just didn't hold up. It was no longer edgy or no longer uh, subversive. We had kind of moved on. We probably absorbed all of the Ernie Kovacs. And, you know, it probably came out in Letterman or whoever was influenced by him. You know, that's 30 years. And things go from making my dad laugh hysterically to not making him even smile. And if you think about, I mean, how old is Don Quixote now? 500 years old? Yeah, 1605. 1605, so. Yeah, yeah the, the moment where I put it down, there's a scene where one of the characters vomits, violently vomits, and the other person is talking. So he ends up uh, catching the vomit with his mouth. I'm laughing. <laughs> I think it's much funnier. I'm laughing that you pointed it out. <laughs> but I read that and I just thought, again, yeah, yeah, <laughs> again with the vomit. I mean, there's you know, there's farting, there's shitting, there, right you now. And, and then I was happy to read about the people who like it, but point out how flawed it is. Mm. And uh, this professor at Amherst, Professor Stevens, who's written a number of books on Don Quixote, his quote is that Cervantes is often falling asleep at the wheel, that he wants to stubbornly fill pages. Mm. Wow, that's kind of a surprise, right? It's not like he was getting paid by the word, like uh, yeah. like a 19th century novelist. Well, I think that's a great pick, and I think you're kind of getting at something that we're going to see a lot on this list, which is it's probably enough to kind of know about these books. Like mm -hmm. I think, I think to be, uh, I think it's important to understand what tilting at windmills means and to understand the relationship between Don Quixote and Sancho Panza and all of that. But that doesn't necessarily mean spending however, a hundred hours or whatever, however long it would take you to, to yeah. actually read the book. I, I wanted to end my pick with a positive spin though, that if you're going going to read a picaresque novel, I, I, I urge you to read 
Huck Finn, if you haven't read Huck Finn, mm-hmm. or J.P. Don Levy's The Ginger Man. Okay. And I'll add uh, The Adventures of Augie March. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. So uh, I'm going to take my first pick, and I think there's going to be a similar theme here, which is uh, comedy. And I'm going to cross off everyone's list, uh, Shakespeare's comedies. <laughs> and I think they're actually, especially reading them, they're not all that funny. If you if you need anything at all, you need the actors who are you know sort of making you laugh with some of their physical humor. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I never find it funny when when people are confusing other people for you know um, when people are obviously obviously in disguise and the actors are somehow blinded as to who the who the real person is because they're wearing a mask or they're dressed up like a woman or something. Wait, are you including Twelfth Night, though? Well, I was, you know, that's on the list. I say if you have to read one, make it Twelfth Night. Okay, good. Or uh, maybe Midsummer Night's Dream. And I also had to say that I don't really consider The Tempest or The Merchant of Venice to be comedies. (laughs) So what I'm crossing off for people is Measure for Measure, Mm -hmm. uh, The Winter's Tale, As You Like It, and then much ado about nothing. Although you can watch the the Kenneth Branagh uh, Emma Thompson movie if you if you are really have a, a desire to see that one. What and, about Midsummer's Night Dream? Well, that that one I'm saying if you have to read one, make it either Twelfth Night or Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> but I don't really like Midsummer Night's Dream the way a lot of people do. It certainly isn't on my list of uh, life changing moments the way Dead Poet Society seemed to yeah uh, insist that it would be. I think, you know, you could stick to the tragedies, the histories, and the sonnets uh-huh. and get a, really get your fill of Shakespeare. And I, I don't think you need to feel guilty if you're not uh, picking up one of Shakespeare's comedies. I just started to feel like when, when I think of Macbeth, some of these Shakespeare comedies, it's like Three's Company <laughs> yeah. comparing it to, you know... Right to, to some, Breaking Bad or something, or The yeah, Sopranos or yeah. something, yeah. Because like right. Macbeth, like I mean, the humor in some of his histories and tragedies is better, maybe than than in the outright comedies. Right. Although I did, you know, we were just talking. You and I were before we started this. We were talking about The Americans, which I think is a great show, and uh, I was astonished to see Larry from Three's Company as a <laughs> as a role. Which uh, I don't think I've ever seen him outside of Three's Company, but he was good too. Ah, <laughs> uh, Larry, the Regal Beagle. Okay, uh, what's your number two? All right, so my number two pick was Finnegan's Wake, oh. <laughs> which is apparently seventy seventh on the top one hundred modern library list. Okay, and, well, I'm glad you said that because I was right. thinking about Finnegan's Wake and then I thought, does anybody really feel like they have to read that? But, I do. Okay, okay. Right. well, I guess if it's number 77 and if you're trying to read the top 100 or something, so, okay. Uh, I feel like if you've read Proust and you've read Musil and Middlemarch mm-hmm. and you've read Ulysses, if you've read Ulysses, maybe that's that's the thing that you know, that should take first, first, first and foremost, and yeah. you know, logical steps. If you read Ulysses and you like it, which I do, you know, you think, okay, there's Finnegan's Wake out there. There's Gravity's Rainbow. There are these books like that. Mm-hmm. And I just 
open up. I have a copy of Financing Wake, and I opened it up at random, and I came across this. Okay, I'll read mm-hmm. you this. I just don't care what my thwarters think. Transname me loveliness now here and me for all times. I'd risk a policeman passing by McGrath or even that beggar of a boots at the post. The flame? Oh, pardon. What was that? Oh, did you speak? Stuff, stuff. It's like, <laughs> like um, maybe if you were paying me a professor's salary, mm. I would read this. Yeah. Or... <laughs> Um, you can wait for the next production. We had the friend of the show and the guest, um, Vincent O'Neill, who came on and, and produced a, a theater version, a theatrical version of Finnegan's Wake called Night Maze. Wow. So, okay. yeah, that would probably be an interesting experience. You know, and the, the thing about Finnegan's Wake is that it reminds me too much of jargony theory, which... Mm-hmm. I sometimes read, and you know, David Foster Wallace has a great essay on authority and American usage and grammar, and he cites that there's this academic uh, contest called the Worst Sentence of the Year, mm-hmm. and this Marxist literary critic I really like, Frederick Jameson, has won it two times, <laughs> <laughs> and I really enjoy. I have four of his books. <laughs> And just to show you, you know, when you're drinking the Kool-Aid and you're reading these books and you think, oh, this is really, this is amazing stuff. So it made me think maybe if I was taking a class on Finnegan's Wake or dating somebody who loved Finnegan's Wake, there would be some kind of, you know, ulterior push for me to <laughs> give it give it more of a chance. There was a, uh, a woman uh, in college who was very into theory and was trying her best to to write a good paper and had this idea that she would write out all of her thoughts and uh, then she would cut them all up into, <laughs> you know, like each sentence would be a strip of paper and then she could reorganize them or she could assess them for their for their merit better if she had them. You know, and she could sort of visualize it this way. So this right. was, I mean, it's this is a, a disastrous way to write it, a paper, but I think it's getting at that idea that theory or literary theory needs to be this creative almost, you know, like you're almost as creative as the artist or the work that you're studying. So she was carrying this and she must have dropped one because <laughs> there was one that was on the floor and somebody came and they taped it to my roommate in my door uh-huh. and the sentence was man is to sex as sex is to sin object <laughs> <laughs> and or maybe it was man is to sin as sin is to sex object and okay. we just like it just it was just on our door for weeks we didn't bother <laughs> to take it down <laughs> And we didn't know who put it there, but, you know, we knew who had written the paper. And then after a few weeks, my roommate said, you know, I kind of understand what that means now. I think I've been thinking about it. And I, kind of, I think I get it. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. well, that's interesting. I'm going to move on to my number two. Mm-hmm. And I, it's interesting that you uh, you invoked uh, David Foster Wallace because I am also invoking him for my number two. And I'm using his... <laughs> 
famous essay called Great Male Narcissists, or it's not mm-hmm. called that, but it's about great male narcissists. And it's where he talks about kind of the end of uh, John Updike, Norman Mailer, and Philip Roth. And mm. so I am going to cross those three off everyone's list. If they haven't read them yet, it's okay not to read them. And then as a bonus, I'm going to add David Foster Wallace and Jonathan Franzen as well. Wow. Yeah. So I'm saving people a lot of time here, but <laughs> I think uh, I think great male narcissism is uh, something that we can probably <laughs> we could probably do with less of. I thought that it's probably unfair to Updike and some of his some of his better works. And I think Roth is kind of hard to leave off the list completely. You know, maybe if someone wants to read Goodbye Columbus or or maybe we should all be reading The Plot Against America now, given where we are in the world. But life mm-hmm. is short, and I just thought Saul Bellow does what all of those people do, but he's mm-hmm. better. I think I'm fine with people deciding that they can save themselves plenty of time by crossing those five people off their list. Here's my argument for um, Roth, is that I think the more, I, I have this weird theory that the more you write, the better you should write. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I think of Roth or Joyce Carol Oates churning out these books every 18 months, yeah, and then, you know, or Ian McEwen now, I mean, he just wrote a book from the perspective of a fetus. He wrote a book about... Um, a spy who falls in love with her mentor. I mean, right. th- these are books that seem to have, they've concocted the premise in a day. Mm-hmm. And there are, they are really good writers, so they're able to pull it off. But, uh, you know, I've been reading Oscar and Lucinda by Peter Carey. And this book, I'm going to make this argument that this book is almost like Ulysses. Mm. I mean, this is a brilliant book that mm-hmm. has such ambition and you know carrie has not written 30 books and you know i i just think there's something about churning out these books every year that you know how about and that's why i like foster wallace i think he tries to pack his books with you know infinite justice about AA, alcoholics anonymous it's also about prep school tennis academies and it's also about um, depression and suicide. And then it's also about the environment and um, about the Quebecois separatists. And all of these things, you, it makes it sound like it just makes no sense, but he, he puts it all into one plot. And when I think of Roth, I think he probably would have written six different books. Mm. I don't know. I guess I'm more willing to take on a big book. I mean, I, I know I was panning. Don Quixote, but you know, <laughs> uh, you know when I, it depends on the tone of the book. I mean, I, I just started to read the USA trilogy by John Dos Passos, right? And it's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's like two thousand pages. Yeah, underappreciated. Yeah, I, I so I read volume one. I was like, this is great. And so I went out and bought volume two and three, and it's waiting for me. Okay. So I, I don't know. I respectfully disagree with some of the, some of the the great white narcissists being erased from the earth. It's a, uh, it's you know <laughs> you're you're using a scalpel and I'm using a machete, but <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm yeah. looking out for my listeners. Well, you know, the, my next pick is along the same themes. I, I 
I picked the art of fielding, which I think I've panned <laughs> in the past. Yeah, um, that that book is a, a real stone in your shoe. As as representative of great American novels that mm. are not great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was pleased to find that B. R. Myers. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah. Yeah, right. So he wrote that crazy reader's manifesto. Yeah, exactly. Where he took down DeLillo and McCarthy and Cormac yep. McCarthy and Annie Brooks. So he wrote an article saying what a shitty book Art of Fielding was. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean the use of little plot devices in that book, like mm-hmm. homosexuality and age difference romances. To me, it was like bad porn. I mean, the setups were so awkward. Mm. And I mean, Myers' problem with it was he said it felt like an MFA novel that had no weight whatsoever. Mm. Mm -hmm. And just sentences and and sort of set passages. Yeah. he, He said they were, it wasn't badly written, but there was no like, he said there was no personality in it. Mm. It was just, you know, he he would much rather read something trashy. Yeah. Okay. So when did that book come out? Uh, let's see. I want to say 2013. Okay. 2012, maybe. Okay. So this is going to lead nicely into my next one because I think there was a period in probably 2012 or 2013 when it really seemed like you had to read that book. Yeah. Like it was on everyone's list. It was making all kinds of best books of the year, Christmas lists. It was, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I bet it was nominated for a few prizes and everything. So my uh, number three is A Rolling Wall, which (laughs) is... I've never heard of it. Yeah. So that's not the name of the book. Oh. This is... (laughs) A rolling wall refers to you don't need to read anything that was written in or published in the last three years. Oh, oh. Okay. So that way you avoid kind of the buzz books and you stick to the yeah. just what what's enduring. And the thing that really got me to start thinking about this is uh, when Underworld came out. Mm-hmm. And people were really scrambling to read Underworld. Right. And then, you know, and I didn't read it, and so I felt I felt kind of out of the loop for a while. And then, like, a year went by, and nobody was talking about it anymore. And nobody was saying, oh, you got to buy Underworld. You got to, you know, because everyone by now had read about half of it or two-thirds of it, and they, or, you know, maybe they finished it, but they were no longer recommending it as a kind of must-read. Okay. And I thought, okay, now I can skip this. And there was another... Uh, Susan Sontag's novel was like that too. Uh, Volcano, Volcano Lover. Lover. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It, there was a moment where it just seemed like you had yeah. to read it because it was the next great novel, and then it just faded from view. So I'm saying, uh, give yourself three years. Tell yourself you don't need to read it, and then after three years, see if it still seems like something you have to read. And for poetry, we can go five years. <laughs> So no contemporary poetry, unless it's your favorite poet or something. I'm not, uh, you yeah. Know, I'm I'm not a, a too rigid on these rules, but it's a good rule of thumb. 
I don't want to be too depressing, but I used to feel a little bit of pressure to read certain books that people were reading, but nowadays I find that nobody's reading. Yeah, yeah that's right. So, <laughs> just, you know, there's it, nobody's saying like, oh, you got to read City on Fire by yeah. Gareth, what, what's his face? I mean, I, you know, I, I have to like read that in print from people, professional reviewers, but the casual reader... You know, I don't, I don't encounter the casual reader. I mean, they're, maybe they're like me reacting and saying like, okay, let me just reread some stuff. Yeah, maybe we've finally moved beyond it. And, and the only thing comparable is like a television show that people watch in real time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the whole, when I was preparing for this, I was thinking how much I love rereading. And I, I do try to urge people to reread books that they think they love and see how they fared um and some of the books that i hated i i think like oh let me reread it i I reread brave new world recently 25 Mm -hmm. years after i first read it and i have to say some of it is is pretty hokey (laughs) (laughs) right But, but other parts are brilliant i mean it's you know to have the the savage on the Indian reservation. And I mean, I don't want to give away the ending, but the ending is just great. Uh, I bet you a lot of people don't remember the ending. Mm. Yeah. But it, it's this beautiful image of a compass and um, a replacement for a compass. Mm. I don't want to give it away. Yeah, I don't remember it. Yeah, check it out. Okay. So, so my, what, yeah, what you're on number four. So right? my fourth pick, you know, I I went with uh, the old man in the sea. Oh. <laughs> as a as a person who likes yep. Hemingway. Okay. And I just think it, I don't know if it's still taught in high school, but I think probably it was the book that you had to read in high school. Mm-hmm. And it's considered the one that won him the Nobel Prize, and yeah, and. Yeah, that's a good pick because, you know, I, I don't think so anybody boring. is saying you got to read, uh, what is it, Across the River and Into the Trees or yeah. or even For Whom the Bell Tolls. But Old Man in the Sea is probably still on a lot of people's list of, oh, that's a book I should get around to one of these days. I mean, imagine the difference if you ask your high school class to read The Hills Like White Elephants mm-hmm. and Indian Camp mm-hmm. and then read The Old Man in the Sea. I mean, it's just, it's kind of like asking, telling an old person to read Naked Lunch and be like, here, read Naked Lunch, you know? (laughs) Right. I mean, it's it's just, the old man in the sea should be read when you're an old man. (laughs) That's that's my, (laughs) I mean, it's such a disservice to Hemingway or ask the kids to read Movable Feast, but. You know, A Movable Feast is a really, would be a really good book. To yeah. have people read because it would it's one of those that not only um is very fun to read but it would it makes you want to read all those people that he was talking about or just live yeah you know live that you know and, and learn more about sculpture and learn more about uh right. paris and food and you know it's just uh it makes it it makes you feel like living life to the fullest when you're young I mean, that's exactly right. Because when you're when you're a kid, you're constantly looking for your world to get bigger. Mm-hmm. I mean, that 
you know, and to be introduced to all these names, you know, when I was, when I was reading in high school and whenever I came across a name, I was, you know, would just look them up a little bit. And if, if there was like a city that I didn't know or a group of writers or a group of artists, I mean, the old man of the sea is this, just this guy trying to kill a fish. And it's like, (laughs) I mean, why not assign Moby Dick? (laughs) Right. Uh, Okay, so I'm on my number four. Actually, this is going to kind of fit a theme of something we were just talking about, which is fiction being less important than it was, or less yeah. less important culturally than it used to be. And I'm going to say, it's kind of like a rolling wall, but I'm going to say any experimental fiction or metafiction that was written mm. more than 10 years ago. Mm. And more than 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Because what I'm saying is, and I'm kind of defining experimental as fiction by authors who want to comment on the form itself, or mm-hmm. where the formal innovations are more essential than the characters, or, right. or the plot, or the themes, or the, the dialogue, or the story. So I, I'm just saying, if you're going to read fiction, read fiction that's about stories and not about fiction. Because the idea that we have you know, that there was somebody 25 years ago that was writing about, you know, the problems of fiction or the problems of narrative, it's no longer relevant because those problems have have uh, diminished in importance because fiction has diminished in, in importance. So just read stories about human beings. <laughs> and it, it kind of reminded me of rock and roll. Rock and roll used to be so important in in terms of rebellion or making Mm -hmm. a statement about society. And so there are all these songs where it seems like every rock and roll band has a song that's about rock and roll. Right. And they say, we're going to rock all night or tonight I'm going to rock you or we're going to, that was when I I bought my guitar. And today rock and roll just has faded in importance so much. And as, as this hallmark of, youthful rebellion or counterculture and it's so uh, co-opted that the idea that you would have a band today playing about rock and roll and the importance of rock and roll it just seems like it would only be nostalgic or ironic or it just doesn't have the same and fiction i'm kind of analogizing that to fiction where if a book is about the problems of fiction it's like well fiction has bigger problems than (laughs) than its internal problems this isn't my fifth pick, but I, I want to, you, you reminded me of this. I hate books where the book you're holding in your hand that you're reading is being written. You find out at the end, lo and mm. behold, it's being written by yeah. one of the characters. Yeah. I just, that unless you, unless it's Clarissa <laughs> or it's William Boyd's any, you know, any given heart, yeah, any human heart. You know, you you just say up front, like, this is one of the characters' journals. Yeah. You know, and so... uh, Didn't the Ice Storm do that? I think the Ice Storm did that. Atonement did that. Mm. I mean, I I like Atonement, but because you don't find out that crap until the end. Yeah. Um, But that, that just drives me crazy. Well, it feels like, it doesn't feel like it's necessarily a way to finish the story of the character. It feels like a way to 
startle the reader and think about how yeah. clever the author was for giving you this big jolt at the end. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I almost thought I would like to write a novella where um, there's like a twist on that whole thing where the person writes this book and it's hated and then it just goes on and on and on. <laughs> and we get this whole commentary on the book. <laughs> <laughs> Just to remind everybody that this has been done so many times and it, you know, it, it still doesn't work. Yeah. Or to do it like Pale Fire, where you sprinkle it in in the beginning and then it, it, it becomes part of the book, but it's integrated. It's not just this big yeah. reveal in the final chapter of the epilogue or something to sort of say, and by the way, um, that's me and, and this is my story and, Right, because like Pale Fire, they, they, they needed to have written that so that it was part of the plot to have mm -hmm. that commentary. But right. the, a book where you get to know this character and they've suddenly like written this whole thing that you've been reading, I, I just don't get it. I just... <laughs> yep. Okay. So, so my what, what's your actual fifth pick? All right, so my number five pick was um, a tie between On the Road and Naked Lunch. <laughs> And okay. to put a positive spin, I I take a book like Into the Wild by mm -hmm. John Krakauer, yeah. which I think is a much better book that that tells you about this, you know, that covers the same experience, which is being young and being an idealist mm -hmm. and being pretty stupid, you know, and, the way looking, you behave. Looking for freedom or looking for a... Yeah, uh, a soul changing experience, and you know, on the road, I I will confess, I read it too late. Perhaps I, mm -hmm. I read it in my thirties, mm -hmm. and um, maybe if I was seventeen, you know, I would I would be really impressed by it because it perhaps it's something like uh, Catcher in the Rye, where if if you read it at in your when you're a teenager, it's mm -hmm. very different than you, if you read it when you're fifty, and you're like, stop whining. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get over yourself, Holden. Yeah. On the Road is a little like that. I can remember, I read it when I was young. And then I remember a, a college professor was complaining about it and saying um, how much it, basically how unrealistic it was and how much it missed, you know, and how much it didn't uh, address like the problems of capitalist society or something. And, and I remember thinking like, oh, that's, just, you're missing the whole point. But then when I think about it, if I read the book now, I probably would be more inclined to be frustrated by yeah. Kerouac and thinking like, oh, yeah, this is all very great that you're living outside society and all of that. But you're basically you're getting money sent to you by someone who's working for it and you're stealing cars that other people have worked for. And, you know, you're sort of uh, you're, yeah. you're you're mooching off of everybody else. And, you know, the thing about On the Road where everyone says, like, oh, the voice, the voice, I just don't find his voice to be, you know, much different than other voices, you mm. know. Yeah. Um, and I I always do this kind of litmus test where I try to imagine could any other, could this sentence be written by any other writer? And, you know, David Foster Wallace is a big example. You know, he writes sentences that could only have been written by him. But then it's not just the, you know, a long sentence. I mean, you take a sentence by Alice Munro and you just know only she could have written the sentence. Mm -hmm. 
And I never feel that. I never felt that with On the Road. Yeah. You know? I feel like he just gets up a full head of steam. Yeah, I mean... You know, you know, the first time where I really started questioning Kerouac was he would write letters to, uh, I guess it was probably Allen Ginsberg and, and people like that, and he would talk about uh, Dean Moriarty's and the real-life Dean Moriarty. What's his name? That guy who was oh, in... The, Sal Cassidy or whatever. Neil Cassidy. Neil yeah. Cassidy, right? And he would he would talk about these letters he got from Neil Cassidy, and Kerak would mm-hmm. say... These are great American literature. This is as good as as Walt Whitman or or Emerson or anybody who's written in American literature. And so I read some of these letters, mm-hmm. and they just read like like a speed freak. They they weren't nearly as compelling as I was led to believe by Kerouac's admiration for them. <laughs> and I ended up thinking, yeah. you know, he was just kind of uh, he was kind of a fanboy of this guy. And he kind of dropped his judgment. And I think Kerouac was a better writer than Neil Cassidy. But the the idea that Kerouac admired it so much and wanted to to write as freely as Neil Cassidy did and everything, I think he just had a a bad model or he was taking a a bad approach. Yeah. Now, I'm sure we're going to get complaints about this. So you can address your complaints. You can tweet them to literaturesc. (laughs) Um, and they will be fielded uh, by our friend Mike. I I will say, though, that I have a good friend who loves Dharma Bums, Mm, mm -hmm. and that is on my list to read because I respect his opinion so much, Mm -hmm. and he says that book has such a soul, and so I'm going to give that book a try. Give that one a try. I'll report back to this. And the the beat... (laughs) The beat I like, actually, a lot of people don't even consider him to be a beat, but he was definitely part of the circle, and I think he qualifies as uh, Gary Schneider. Uh-huh. I really like the poetry of Gary Schneider. No, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know it. Um, I, I know who he is, but yeah, I mean, I you know, I, the other thing with Kerouac is I really love his connection to San Francisco. Yes, and the way the literary scene in San Francisco, I don't know what it was like before, you know, the fifties, but they seem to have mythologized him in such a great way mm-hmm. that I completely love that. I do too. So, it's weird. It's weird. I mean, if I New think York of does, New York doesn't have anything like that. It's funny. If I think of mm-hmm. Kerouac in any other place, I find him to be a little bit annoying. Yeah. You know, if you think of Kerouac, if, if he were the hero of Houston, Texas, it would just <laughs> right. be kind of like, oh, yeah, the blowhard Jack Kerouac. But the fact that San Francisco embraced him and that he had that love for San Francisco and all of that, he really makes San Francisco an appealing city. Maybe that's why they yeah, they revere him so much. It, it does make you want to go to San Francisco. And in fact, I think I'm going there in a couple of weeks and... Uh, Nice. Maybe I'll read a little Kerouac. Although now that you've crossed him off my list, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe I can't. Okay, I'm gonna get to my number five because I have really, uh, I am really trying to help listeners with this, <laughs> and this is kind of a uh, this is going to end the discussion of things you don't need to read because what I've done is I've come up with a a scheme of the saturation point of prolific authors. 
Mm, okay. And so this is, I've listed out uh, some authors who've written a lot, mm-hmm. and then I've put limits on what you need to read by that author. Mm, okay. So I'm going to start with Charles Dickens <laughs> and say you you need to read no more than five Charles Dickens novels. If you've read, if you've read five, you can stop. You don't need wow. to keep going. Yep. Five. Wait. So that'd be like all right. Bleak House, David Copperfield, of course. Mm-hmm. Maybe Great uh, Expectations. Yeah. Tale of Two Cities. Okay. Boy, and then um, what about that Dombey and Son? What, what was that? <laughs> See. <laughs> See. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say maybe you could, three. You could throw three. in a fifth. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying. Once you get to five. Feel yeah. good about yourself. Stop. Okay. Let's keep going. No more than three novels by either uh, Saul Bellow or Toni Morrison. You read three, you can stop. No more than one and a half novels of William Faulkner. And yeah, I, was, I, I almost, I, I try to come up with a Faulkner book because, I, you know, I, I think I mentioned this before. I, I never see anyone reading him, and I, I actually don't feel any strong urge to read him myself. Like, reread, uh, reread him. I mean, like Light in read, August or... Yeah, yeah. Having, having read Light in August, um, what's the one with uh, <sighs> As I Lay Dying and um, Absalon, Absalon, <laughs> Yeah. Right? Well, like, most people, it would either be uh, As I Lay Dying or The Sound and the Fury. Oh, Sound and the Fury, right. So I've read four of them, and then... Yeah. Don't you think you could have got by with one and a half? <laughs> right? You'd get Faulkner. Okay. Half a novel of uh, by Anthony Trollope, William Thackeray, and Kingsley or Martin Amos. Oof, boy. For those, for those two, you could read a quarter novel each. That's... <laughs> That's sufficient. Oh boy! Then, (laughs) oh, you want to stop there? You want to? Well, I mean, I would, I would, I would urge everyone to read Lucky Jim, but okay, I I have an irrational love for Lucky Jim. But if someone read half of Lucky Jim, don't you think that'd be enough? No. (laughs) (laughs) You never Uh, get to the Mary Mary England speech at the end. (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna press on. A single novella by Henry James, or the equivalent portion of a novel. So about I don't know fifty or sixty pages. Uh, then I'm really I'm really getting down to the the bone here. Uh-huh. No more than five pages of Joyce Carol Oates, or Sir Walter Scott, or Ezra Pound's Cantos, or Thomas Pynchon, or the Canterbury Tales or Gertrude Stein, or Samuel Beckett's fiction? Oof. All right, well, I I think everyone <laughs> should read Crime of Lot 49 in its entirety. It's, all, it's only 177 pages. I'm saving readers 172. <laughs> and I, I think there are parts of Beckett's Watt that <laughs> are parts, worth reading. Yes. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the first 50 pages. Okay. So... <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's no objections. Uh, and then, well, I goes... like expensive people by Joyce Carol Oates, so okay. I, I, I think you should read the whole thing. Uh, then we're going to get to your number two. I have no more than one page of Finnegan's Wake. 
<laughs> and then finally, I have zero to one pages of anything by Dave Eggers. Oh, boy. <laughs> I've, I've read two books by Dave Eggers, Zaytun and Zaytun and uh, What is the What? And I just, I think those are good, really good books. So, But they're not fiction. They're not as fiction. Okay, yeah. Yeah, life is short. <laughs> I, you know, we should we should throw in some books we've put down. I mean, I put down Wuthering Heights, mm. Charter House of Parma. Oh, um, two books I love. Yeah, and uh, what else? I mean, I told you I put down Suitable Boy. Oh. Um, I probably put down a fair amount of Henry James, but I love Portrait of a Lady. Yeah, you know, I guess there should be kind of a. I would give that as a as an overall rule, I guess, that if you put something down, if you really gave it a shot and you put it down, you shouldn't feel bad about it. There's too many other good things out there, and there's too many reasons why any book, you yeah. don't need to punish yourself and slog your way through it. You can just uh, look for something you enjoy. I mean, but and by ignoring these books, you can, coming across a new writer is a great feeling like this this weekend i've been reading joy williams for the first time Mm, i don't mm -hmm. know if you know joy williams but yeah she is amazing just a just a remarkable voice her short stories i'm reading taking care right now Mm. Um, i'm reading a story a day and i I, i'm I'm almost retroact i'm sad that i i didn't know who she was yeah I i never read her until today you know this weekend so well, and that and that's what you can stumble across if you don't read this other crap. <laughs> <laughs> Tan Quixote. Right. <laughs> the field will be wide open for the Joy Williamses to enter your life. Yeah. Once you feel free from the shackles of Don Quixote. <laughs> but, you know, now I'm thinking maybe I'll read Don Quixote when I turn 70. Yeah. Maybe that's what I. Maybe the sex will appeal to me when I'm seventy. <laughs> the sex and the, the tawdriness and <laughs> the vomit. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's wrap things up there. And uh, I think I think we did a pretty good job. Yeah. I mean, I I, I feel pretty good about myself. Yeah. I feel. I feel. <laughs> like I've done all right in life. Yeah, I feel I feel a little cleansed. I feel unburdened. <laughs> okay, well, thanks again for joining me on the History of Literature podcast. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike Palindrome for joining us, as always. Some good episodes are coming up, people, so please subscribe and tell all your friends. I give Gar a hard time, but he and all the others work very hard. And all of us here truly appreciate all of your support. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 